0: The final chapter of The Beginning of Infinity. This isn't the final episode, however. This is just the second in a series called The Beginning. And in last episode, we were talking about David's idea that we should call knowledge in science rather than calling it scientific theories of or scientific facts about, if we just agreed that every discovery in science, every new discovery, was another grand scientific misconception, it would undo a lot of epistemological problems a lot of hang-ups that people have about following the science or thinking that science is settled in some way if we simply understood and took seriously the idea that all knowledge contains misconception and error and therefore called it a misconception perhaps people would be more willing to change their minds and search for ways to improve our knowledge rather than believing in science as if it was some religious dogma now this is true even in mathematics, as David said, because although theorems tend not to be shown false once they've been proven, although it is possible, it is possible to find an error in a proof, this is a rare situation. What is more common is that mathematicians gain a deeper understanding of certain theorems they find that they are not as foundational fundamental as deep as what originally was thought in fact there's often something deeper there's a more general case in mathematics and so let me go back to the book and reread or just read and David writes optimism and reason are incompatible with the conceit that our knowledge is nearly there in any sense, or its foundations are. Yet comprehensive optimism has always been rare, and the lure of the prophetic fallacy strong. But there have always been exceptions. Socrates famously claimed to be deeply ignorant, and Popper wrote, quote from Popper, I believe that it would be worth trying to learn something about the world, even if in trying to do so, we should merely learn that we do not know much. It might be well for us all to remember that, while differing widely in the various little bits we know, in our infinite ignorance, we are all equal. From Conjectures and Refutations in 1963. Infinite ignorance is a necessary condition for there to be infinite potential for knowledge. Rejecting the idea that we are nearly there is a necessary condition for the avoidance of dogmatism, stagnation, and tyranny. Pausing there, just my reflection on that. Remember Popper's deep truth about manifest truth and tyranny. He said, if I can recall, the doctrine that the truth is manifest is the root of all tyranny. And what he meant by that is that once someone honestly believes, thinks actually true, that they've got in hand a final truth, then many people will think that this is something that needs to be defended with their lives. And perhaps they'd be right to do so if in fact they had the ultimate final truth, the holy truth. This is the history of much conflict in the world, people thinking they have the truth and they will fight to the death in order to preserve it. And so Popper is right to say that the doctrine that truth is manifest is the root of all tyranny, that these epistemological debates, questions, discussions are not in the abstract. They have real world consequences. If you are a thoroughgoing fallibilist, you're likely not going to insist on the death of your compatriots in order to defend a thesis which you do not think is the ultimate final truth. But on the other hand, those other people might. But of course, that then evokes um, Yeats, William Butler Yeats, the, the second coming uh, poem. I'll just read the, fam- the most famous two lines where he writes, quote from Yeats, the best lack all conviction... Well, the worst are full of passionate intensity. But we don't need to go down that road. That in being fallibilists, we do not have to lack conviction. And we do not have to counter passionate intensity with impotent relativism. We can still claim to know what we know. And still be willing to defend the moral ideals and values that we think are important for the maintenance of civilization. But we just don't have to be tyrannical about it. We don't have to go to war over it. If war is brought to us, then we should be willing to have the conviction to defend ourselves and enlightenment values. Okay, back to the book. In 1996, the journalist John Horgan caused something of a stir with his book The End of Science, facing the limits of knowledge in the twilight of the scientific age. In it, he argued that the final truth in all fundamental areas of science was or at least as much of it as human minds would ever be capable of grasping, had already been discovered during the 20th century. Horgan wrote that he had originally believed science to be open-ended, even infinite, but he became convinced of the contrary by, what I would call, a series of misconceptions and bad arguments. His basic misconception was empiricism. He believed that what distinguishes science from unscientific fields, such as literary criticism, philosophy, or art, is that science has the ability to resolve questions objectively by comparing theories with reality, while other fields can produce only multiple, mutually incompatible interpretations of any issue. He was mistaken in both respects. As I've explained throughout this book, there is objective truth to be found in all those fields, while finality or infallibility cannot be found anywhere. Corgan accepts, from the bad philosophy of postmodern literary criticism, its will for confusion between two kinds of ambiguity that can exist in philosophy and art. The first is the ambiguity of multiple true meanings, either intended by the author or existing because of the reach of ideas. The second is the ambiguity of deliberate vagueness, confusion, equivocation or self-contradiction. The first is an attribute of deep ideas, the second an attribute of deep silliness. By confusing them... One ascribes to the best art and philosophy the qualities of the worst, since, in that view, readers, viewers, and critics can attribute any meaning they choose to the second kind of ambiguity, bad philosophy. Bad philosophy declares the same to be true of all knowledge. All meanings are equal, and none of them is objectively true. One then has a choice between complete nihilism or regarding all ambiguity as a good thing in those fields. Horgan chooses the latter option. He classifies art and philosophy as ironic fields, irony being the presence of multiple conflicting meanings in a statement. Okay, pausing there, my reflection. Um, so we have a great battle. A great battle for science. Is it the beginning or is it the end? And now, according to Horgan here, of course, things are coming to an end. And you can find uh, more writings of John Horgan uh, more recently. Online, but they basically circle the same ideas. I don't think he has given up on any of the the claims he makes here. At least I haven't seen him publicly uh, backtrack on anything. Even though Horgan's book was published, um, Hogan's book was published back in well, first published uh, back in '96, uh, republished again in '98. So, so that's uh, more than ten years before the, the the first publication, the beginning of infinity. And I know for a fact that. Um, John Horgan interviewed David Deutsch, and that interview, that wonderful interview, is available online. You can, I think you can find it on YouTube. Um, John Horgan speaking to David Deutsch about the beginning of infinity. That's a wonderful conversation. I don't know why John Horgan wasn't convinced, because certainly since that uh, since that discussion, he has made many of the same points as he makes in the end of science. Uh, um, and when one one point he has brought up Again and again, (laughs) in his book and in articles that he has written, is a kind of character assassination of Karl Popper. I don't know why people uh, wish to do this. Uh, Much the same occurs in Wittgenstein's Poker, where, well, to be fair, (laughs) um, fans of Popper, some fans of Popper, uh, who claim to have known Wittgenstein, complain that Wittgenstein was not a particularly pleasant person to get along with. Uh, Similarly fans of Wittgenstein complain that Popper was a a terribly annoying person or, you know, he he wasn't a particularly pleasant person. But of course, if you speak to fans of Popper who met Popper, he was a wonderfully friendly person. I don't know what the point is of, of, of debating this, except that it reveals something about one's willingness to engage with the ideas when you start talking about the person's supposed character. And John Horgan does this in spades. John Horgan's probably a nice guy. I've never met him. But I know he likes to talk about Popper's personality. And so if we go to the end of science, to the chapter called The End of Philosophy, uh, we can read about, supposedly, um, what Popper was like. Because John Horgan speaks about his personal encounter with Karl Popper, because he goes to interview him. And so... Because in part this series is a um, is is very much very much a tribute to the work of Karl Popper. Let's give the other side uh, a bit of a run. And so, what does John Horgan say in this book about Karl Popper? So he arrives at, at, at um, Sir Karl's house, and I'll just read it. And, and, and Horgan writes when he arrives at the house. A tall, handsome woman dressed in dark pants and shirt with short, dark hair answered the door. Mrs. Mew. She was only slightly less forbidding in person than over the telephone. As she led me into the house, she told me that Sir Carl was quite tired. He had undergone a spate of interviews and congratulations brought on by his 90th birthday the previous month, and he had been working too hard preparing an acceptance speech for the Kyoto Award known as Japan's Nobel I should expect to speak to him for only an hour at the most. I was trying to lower my expectations when Popper made his entrance. He was stooped, equipped with a hearing aid and surprisingly short. I had assumed that the author of such autocratic prose would be tall. Yet he was as kinetic as a bantamweight boxer. He brandished an article I had written for Scientific American about how quantum mechanics was compelling some physicists to abandon the view of physics as a wholly objective enterprise. I don't believe a word of it, he declared in in an Austrian-accented growl. Subjectivism has no place in physics, quantum or otherwise. Physics, he exclaimed, grabbing a book from a table and slamming it down, is that. This from a man who co-wrote a book espousing dualism, the notion that ideas and other constructs of the human mind exist independently of the material world. Pausing there, well, Popper was quite right, wasn't he? To reject subjectivism in quantum theory. So I don't know what problem Horgan has here, but he seems to be conflating this with Popper's apparently espousing dualism. I'm not sure that's entirely true, by the way. It depends on what one means by dualism. After all, I could argue the thesis that the mind is software running on the brain, which is hardware, which is a form of dualism, that there is an abstract reality and a physical reality dualism there is number and there are atoms dualism but why that (laughs) why that has anything to do with whether or not one thinks that the laws of physics should be subjective which is to say the laws of physics have a place in them for consciousness at the fundamental level namely that your one's observing of an experiment affects the outcome of the experiment i don't know but Horgan's upset about that let's go back to the book Horgan writes of Popper. Quote, once seated, he kept darting away to forage for books or articles that could buttress a point. Striving to dredge a name or date from his memory, he kneaded his temples and gritted his teeth as if in agony. At one point, when the word mutation briefly eluded him, he slapped his forehead repeatedly and with alarming force shouting, terms, terms, terms. Words poured from him so rapidly and with so much momentum that I began to lose hope that I could ask any of my prepared questions. I'm over 90 and I can still think, he declared, as if suspecting that I doubted it. He tirelessly touted a theory of the origin of life proposed by a former student, Gunther Wurchauser, a German patent attorney who had a PhD in chemistry. Popper kept emphasizing that he had known all the titans of 20th century science. Einstein, Schrödinger, Heisenberg... Popper blamed Bohr, whom he knew very well, for having introduced subjectivism into physics. Bohr was a marvellous physicist, one of the greatest of all time, but he was a miserable philosopher, and one couldn't talk to him. He was talking all the time, allowing practically only one or two words to you, and then at once cutting in. Okay, pausing there, my reflection. So, what Horgan's saying there is that Popper's name dropping. All the while, Horgan. <laughs> talking about his personal meeting with Popper in order to try and characterise Popper in a particular way. Um, and further saying that this Niels Bohr was a miserable philosopher who was talking all the time, never allowing anyone to talk at the same time. So in other words, Hogan's trying to say that Popper is like Niels Bohr. That's the insinuation here. That is the mean, unfair insinuation here uh, against a man who obviously cannot defend himself. Uh, Back to the book, Uh, Horgan writes, As Mrs. Mew turned to leave, Popper abruptly asked her to find one of his books. She disappeared for a few minutes and then returned empty-handed. Excuse me, Carl, I couldn't find it, she reported. Unless I have a description, I can't check every bookcase. "'It was actually, I think, on the right of this corner, "'but I could have taken it away, maybe.' "'His voice trailed off. "'Mrs. Mew somehow rolled her eyes "'without really rolling them and vanished. "'He paused a moment, "'and I desperately seized the opportunity to ask a question. "'I wanted to ask you about... "'Yes, you should ask me your questions. "'I have wrongly taken the lead. "'You can ask me all your questions first. "'Just pausing there. "'This is all in quote marks. "'Now, I don't know, maybe Horgan had made a recording.' it's silent on that maybe he took copious notes maybe he has an idactic memory i don't know but i'm suspicious about putting these quotes in quote marks quotes should be for the exact words that somebody says perhaps Horgan's being very honest here perhaps let's go back to the book (laughs) Hawken writes, as I began to question Popper about his views, it became apparent that his sceptical philosophy stemmed from a deeply romantic, idealized view of science. He thus denied the assertion often made by the logical positivists that science can ever be reduced to a formal logical system in which raw data are methodically converted into truth. A scientific theory, Popper insisted, is an invention, an act of creation, as profoundly mysterious as anything in the arts. The history of science is everywhere speculative, Popper said. It is a marvellous history. It makes you proud to be a human being. Framing his face in his outstretched hands, Popper intoned, I believe in the human mind. Pausing there, my reflection. Well, that's generous and that's nice. and I, I, can, I, can, I can believe that that is precisely the words of Popper and the way in which he would have been excited to talk about history and, and the importance, the centrality of people. Okay, skipping a little, back to Horgan organites when i asked popper if he thought that science was incapable of achieving absolute truth he exclaimed no no and shook his head vehemently he like the logical positives before him believed that a scientific theory could be absolutely true in fact, he had no doubt that some scientific theories were absolutely true, although he refused to say which ones, but he rejected the positive belief that we can never know that a theory is true. We must distinguish between truths, which is objective and absolute, and certainty, which is subjective. You know, pausing there, my reflection. Well, I don't know about that. I would much prefer to see that written in one of Popper's texts as to whether a scientific theory could be absolutely true. He had no doubt Popper had no doubt. And that's in quote marks as well. So I have some doubt that Popper said no doubt. Okay. Okay, skipping a little more, and I'll just end on this, just give you a taste of uh, the end of science. Um, Horgan writes of Popper, quote, He thus scoffed at the hope of some scientists to achieve a complete theory of nature, one that answers all questions quote from Popper. Many people think that the problems can be solved. Many people think the opposite. I think we have gone very far, but we are much further away. I must show you one passage that bears on this. He shuffled off again and returned with his book, Conjectures and Refutations. Opening it, he read his own words with reverence. In our infinite ignorance, we are all equal. Okay, pausing there. Um, I think I might have to do an episode, painful as it could be, (laughs) breaking down parts of um Horgan's book i mean it really is the antithesis to so much that's in the beginning of infinity and i just think it lacks a certain generosity in the portrayal of popper we uh, why one cannot stick to i guess it's a certain kind of book it's a narrative but why one cannot stick to discussing the ideas rather than the way in which popper apparently presented the ideas to Horgan, or the mood that he was in, so on and so forth. I don't know. It's all part of this same thing that one gets when discussing the work of Karl Popper. Namely, it is eventually brought up by someone that he didn't practice his own philosophy or take his own philosophy seriously in some way or other. I don't know what the alternative is. I mean, Horgan seems, in some sense, to almost understand what Pop is saying, but he rejects it anyway. Okay, let's go back to the beginning of infinity. And remember, uh, Horgan has just distinguished philosophy, for example, from science. Philosophy because, in his conception, there are multiple, consisting inter- multiple existing interpretations of any philosophical doctrine. Therefore, you have what's called an ironic field in his mind. And David writes, however, unlike the postmodernists, Horgan thinks that science and mathematics are the shiny exceptions to all that. They alone are capable of non-ironic knowledge. But there is also, he concludes, such a thing as ironic science, the kind of science that cannot resolve questions because essentially it is just philosophy or art. Ironic science can continue indefinitely, but that is precisely because it never resolves anything. It never discovers objective truth. Its only value is in the eye of the beholder. So the future, according to Horgan, belongs to ironic knowledge. Objective knowledge has already reached its ultimate bounds. Haugen surveys some of the open questions of fundamental science and judges them all either ironic or non-fundamental in support of his thesis, but that conclusion was made inevitable by his premises alone. For consider the prospect of any future discovery that would constitute fundamental progress. We cannot know what it is, but bad philosophy can already split it, on principle, into a new rule of thumb and a new interpretation or explanation. The new rule of thumb cannot possibly be fundamental. It will just be another equation. Only a trained expert could tell the difference between it and the old equation. The new interpretation will, by definition, be pure philosophy, and hence must be ironic. By this method, any potential progress can be preemptively reinterpreted as non-progress. Horgan rightly points out that his prophecy cannot be proved false by placing it in the context of previous failed prophecies. The fact that Mickelson was wrong about the achievements of the 19th century and Lagrange about those of the 17th does not imply Horgan was wrong about those of the 20th. However, it so happens that our current scientific knowledge includes a historically unusual number of deep, fundamental problems. Never before in the history of human thought has it been so obvious that our knowledge is tiny and our ignorance vast, and so, unusually, Horgan's pessimism contradicts existing knowledge as well as being a prophetic fallacy. For example, the problem situation of fundamental physics today has a radically different structure from that of 1894. Although physicists then were aware of some phenomena and theoretical issues which we now recognize as harbingers of revolutionary explanations to come, their importance was unclear at the time. It was hard to distinguish those harbingers from anomalies that would eventually be cleared up with existing explanations, plus the tweaking of the sixth place of decimals, or minor terms in a formula. But today, there is no such excuse for denying that some of our problems are fundamental. Our best theories are telling us of fundamental mismatches between themselves and the reality they are supposed to explain. Pausing there, my reflection on this. Uh, and and we'll, we'll leave it here for today... Because David's about to go into um, some of uh, those open questions, but I might just talk about my own uh, favourite ones to do with these. One of the first real anomalies found uh, in fundamental physics that suggests something is deeply misunderstood or deeply unknown, and we are certainly not at the end of science, is Well, someone like Vera Rubin, the astronomer who studied the rotation curve of galaxies, how fast a galaxy is rotating, spiral galaxies are rotating much faster than the amount of matter that we can see should permit them to. In other words, there's more mass in these galaxies than we can see if we rely upon our best explanation of gravity. Our best explanation of gravity All you need to do is to know the mass of something that's orbiting or rotating, like the Earth as it goes around the sun. If you know the mass of the sun, you should be able to calculate how fast the Earth is going to orbit, and indeed you can. But with the galaxy, it doesn't seem to work out that the mass that you can see is not sufficient to cause the velocity of the stars that are going around in that galaxy. In other words, there appears to be dark matter. This is a huge thing. This is a huge question. What is this dark matter? Is there a whole zoo of new particles out there that we cannot detect that don't interact with anything but gravity? Possible. We just don't know. It's an open question as to what the cause of these gravitational anomalies is. Do we need a new theory of gravity? Either way, it's very interesting. Now, it could be the case. Could be the case that there is a systematic error going on with all the experiments, all the observations. But there are many different observations. For example, the movement of entire clusters of galaxies. So even if you could solve in some way the rotation curve by fiddling with the equations for gravity, you haven't solved various other problems that appear to reveal the existence of dark matter gravitational lensing is a very important one Uh, this, this gravitational lensing idea is you can look at extremely distant things like very very distant quasars as the light passes by galaxies that can give you a measure of the mass in those galaxies and so even if you can fix this rotation curve stuff by changing your equations of gravity that doesn't fix this gravitational lensing problem okay you haven't fixed that one and the, the 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 so-called pattern of anisotropies in the cosmic microwave background radiation maps. We've got a number of those, and the size of the anisotropies, these little um, these little regions, cold and dark, cold and hot, hotter regions, slightly hotter and slightly colder regions. The size of those has something to do with the amount of dark matter in the universe as well, and changing your equations of gravity won't fix that either. And then, even more astonishing, is Dark energy. Dark energy is a, a very much an open problem. And, and, and again, unless we find there is systematic error in all the observations that we've made experimentally, we have this issue of what is this energy driving the accelerating expansion of the universe? It used to be thought, well, the Big Bang happened and so there is only three options that could, uh, that could occur given what we know about gravity and given what we know about mass. That either the big bang occurs and then we end up with a big crunch if the amount of matter in the universe is sufficient to cause the entire universe to then fall, collapse back in on, a, on itself, the big crunch. Or perhaps it could be kind of like a projectile you throw a ball and it just expands and then it falls and stops. Okay, that could be a kind of universe where there is a finely tuned. Balance between the amount of mass and the amount of gravity. Or maybe, just maybe, the amount of matter in the universe is insufficient to cause recollapse. And so you get this expansion that just goes on forever and ever and ever, increasingly, slowly, slowly, slowly. And that will seem to be the most likely. Candidate that well, the first one there didn't seem to be any evidence for this big crunch, the second one would have to be finely tuned, but the third one okay, we just have this gradually slowing down but infinite expansion of the universe. Well, none of these three candidates, none of these three derivations from our best theory of cosmology, Big Bang, actually turned out to be true. The what appears to be the case. Is a massive problem. Is that the universe has expanded after the Big Bang, and now it's taking off and getting even faster. It's expanding faster and faster and faster all the time. Is if something is driving it? Additional energy is pushing it. A force, if you like, almost pushing space apart ever faster. What is this thing? Next episode, David, uh, being a real physicist, <laughs> unlike me, is going to explain some more about this Uh, and so we can go into some detail that'll be fun about dark energy but for now I think we leave it here we've uh we've had some depressing times with John Horgan and we might have to do a separate episode on him but until next time bye-bye